0: Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. This episode of Health Bite is sponsored by Dell Nutrition, a line of functional nutrition bars and supplements I have personally curated to enhance health and well-being. Today I had the opportunity to talk with Hilary Scheinbaum. She's a journalist and author of her first book, The Dry Challenge. How to Lose the Booze for Dry January, Sober October, and Any Other Alcohol-Free Month. Hillary talks about her unique perspective coming from her red carpet days as a contributor to regional and national publications, including New York Times, USA Today, Travel Leisure, New York Magazine, And really being in this world of entertainment and alcohol, not to mention that she was in the food and beverage space as well, and how she took her friend on a bet and decided to go dry. The result was this great book and the conversation that you're about to hear. Enjoy. Hi, all. So welcome back to our podcast, Health Bite, where we talk about all things health and wellness. I'm so excited today to have journalist and author Hilary Scheinbaum to talk to us about her personal experience with dry months and how she came to write this book that has been a sensation, The Dry Month Challenge. Welcome, Hillary. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. I think you have a really unique perspective, particularly given your background and how you accidentally stepped into this world.
1: Totally. I mean, it was definitely not something that I planned. And certainly, I never thought I would write a book about not drinking. But you know, the the pieces fell where they did. And I'm so glad that it worked out that way.
0: Yeah. So tell us how it happened and where you were in your life when you took on this challenge.
1: Definitely. So, I'm going to take you back to late 2016. It was actually a week before New Year's. I had, you know, a dinner scheduled with my friend Alejandro, and I hadn't seen him in a while, so we were just going to, you know, catch up about life and work, family friends, etc. At the time I was a red carpet reporter. So my day-to-day life, actually, my work life started around 5.30 p.m. every night. And sometimes it would end at like 2 a.m. So, you know, scheduling time with friends was definitely important to me. That said, you know, my, my days really consisted of going to red carpets, interviewing celebrities, and then attending after parties. And there was, you know, always drinks that were available. It was never encouraged that I would necessarily drink or drink a lot but it wasn't frowned upon either
0: I'm sure after parties in the entertainment world are not dry no they're
1: not it's typically full of you know top shelf liquor you know really nice champagne they really spare no expense to entertain you know the entertainers and that kind of world. So it was really fun. And you know, in my 20s, it was my dream job. And I enjoyed it so much. It was really exciting. And then obviously, during the day, because my work today didn't start until later on in the the evening, I would occupy my time freelancing for a number of outlets. And one of my main beats at the time was food and beverage. So during the day, I was, you know, reporting on wine, beer and spirits and cocktails, bartenders, you know, all that fun stuff, hospitality and then at night, you know, living it. <laughs> so, I think that, you know, a lot of my work life definitely encompassed some form of alcohol consumption and even when I was not on the red carpet or attending after parties, I should say, or, you know, reporting about these beverage trends, I was a 20-something and I was, you know, single and dating. And getting together with my friends for drinks, you know, birthdays, et cetera, all these different celebrations that often kind of circle around drinking.
0: Yeah. And you were, I mean, I think it's so important to point out that you were fully immersed personally, professionally. Yeah. Right. In your day job and your night job.
1: Yeah. It was like a day-to-day thing. So it was definitely a part of my everyday life. You know, even if I wasn't drinking, I was definitely thinking about, drinks or you know talking about them or interviewing etc.
0: So now fast forward to New Year's. <laughs> yeah so fast forward to New Year's after
1: you know I had I went to sushi with Alejandro and we we caught up we talked about New Year's that was coming up and you know if either of us had New Year's resolutions and I did not I don't think he did either, to be honest, but he, he brought up this trend called dry January. And obviously I didn't think that it would fit into my life. So I I really brushed off the notion of ever trying a dry month or dry January, because, you know, given what I just said about how it was so ingrained in my career and also my personal life, it just didn't make sense to me. So on New Year's Eve, lo and behold, you know, I'm at a friend's party and I'm texting all my other friends who aren't there. And I'm saying, you know, Happy New Year. And I, for some reason, decided to pick up my cell phone with, you know, a glass of champagne, my phone in in the other hand, and text Alejandro and and ask him if he wanted to go ahead and do a dry January with me and make it a bet.
0: So funny. It's like uh, you had this moment of inspiration that like changed the trajectory of your work and your life.
1: Yeah. And what's ironic is, you know, I think that my obviously tipsy texting this specific message led me to not drink for the next 31 days. So it's it's a bit ironic, but that's the truth. So Alejandro agreed. He, I think, thought that the odds were in his favor, considering my lifestyle. But we embarked on this bet together and ultimately I won and he ended up losing. He was peer pressured by a girl at a bar. And, um, you know, I won a really nice dinner. And ultimately, at the end of the month, I just, I reflected back on how much my life had changed in such a short period of time and how I was feeling and it made all the difference. And, you know, I kept on doing it year after year.
0: It's interesting because the whole dry month thing started out in the UK, right? And you can tell us a little bit about that. But the studies, as you point out in your book, the studies show that people who engage in this one month, you know, hiatus, they're much more likely to drink less and to do repeated months, right?
1: Yeah, there's a study that shows also people who do a dry January, they consume less alcohol in the months that follow. And I have personally recognize that within myself, I've now been doing dry January since 2017. And over the course of, you know, these past five years, I've certainly drank less and less as the months have gone on and even more so as I've repeated the challenge. So even during 2020, especially I, you know, kicked off the year doing that first initial dry month. And then I had extended it, I think even till like maybe Valentine's day, but by the time the pandemic you know, kicked in in New York in March, I gave up alcohol again, because I realized that I function much better, you know, my anxiety is lower, I sleep better. And I didn't want to, you know, keep on adding to my stress. So instead, I just eliminated that from the equation. Um, And then throughout 2020, I I definitely I had probably 10 or fewer drinks altogether.
0: You know, I've heard you speak before and and to hear that you drank less than one drink a month, Not that you were a major drinker, but coming from the world that you were in, particularly in the time of the pandemic. And I'm pretty sure there was an article that was published in JAMA in the first half of 2020 that said drinking went up by like 17 and some percentage and heavy drinking in women went up pretty substantially, 40 to 50%, I think was the statistic. It's really interesting that you did that, but I want to follow up on something that you said because... The reason why, of course, everyone was, is drinking during this time was in order to create more ease, right? Like people are searching, needing more ease and calm. They're looking for an anxiolytic, something to take away the anxiety. But in fact, your experience and the data, the science shows that actually, while it's sedating, it's anxiety provoking or stimulating.
1: Absolutely. And that kind of ties into, you know, one of the major things for me is my sleep quality. I think, you know, during the time of free dry January challenges for me, you know, during my red carpet stints and things like that, I was, you know, running on high anxiety of sleeping maybe like four to five hours a night on average. And I thought as a 20 something that it was due to my crazy schedule, and me just being a very anxious person in general, and not realizing that alcohol was really contributing to how terrible my sleep quality was. And I think, you know, when you're around a lot of people who are doing the same thing, and they're all drinking, and I again, like, if I was having a drink, it would be like one or two on, you know, a a night out, I didn't think that I was, you know, consuming so much that it was going to have such a A terrible impact. But the reality is, is that alcohol initially sedates you and then it'll cause these awakenings, you know, throughout the night. And I think that's exactly what was happening to me because I would wake up at like four in the morning and then just not be able to fall back asleep. And anybody who knows, you know, the difference between having a quality good night's rest and just feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to fall asleep in my coffee knows that you know running on that schedule for a long time will really wreak havoc
0: yeah it's depleting absolutely not to mention that it's not only affecting the quality of sleep but it's also affecting like the sleep architecture so like REM and non-REM sleep REM sleep particularly gets affected and that's where we store memories and so in terms of like productivity it's really a killer because it's affecting your sleep, which ultimately impacts your cognition and productivity. And then you can't remember a dang thing, right? What you've learned, actually, it affects your memory um, and your cognition. So then that also impacts your productivity.
1: Totally. And I, you know, it affects so much more than that too. Like not only is it going to mess with your productivity, but also when we think of productivity, we also think about how we're spending our time and, there's a statistic that I include in the book that came out of a UK survey that found that the average adult spends nearly two years of their life hungover. And that was shocking to me, especially, you know, as somebody who spent so many years not maybe feeling my best, but also feeling like there was not enough time in the day to get everything I wanted to do done and also like feel rested and feel, you know, good about everything that I produce in a short period of time. I think that like considering that it takes, you know, two years to to get a master's takes two years to have two children in that period of time, like, that is such a significant portion of your life that is dedicated, not even to drinking or getting ready to drink or preparing, but simply like, recovering and feeling terrible. So yeah, there are a lot of things that like, we just kind of brush off as normal. And I don't think
0: it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean you you uncover a lot of this research in your book and you know I have to preface it with you know as a physician I reflect over kind of what I was taught and all the education around alcohol was really in terms of antioxidants, cardiovascular benefit, you know all the healthful aspects of alcohol and it wasn't until much later when I actually did lit searches that I learned about the incidence of breast cancer or other cancers. Most of us know that if we drink super heavily, our livers are going to suffer, <laughs> right? But I think what people don't know is some of the other health effects. And you talk about that research. What are some of the things that you uncovered?
1: Yeah, so I mean, besides sleep, which is a it, it's just a major one, you know, it affects things like your skin, which I didn't even like take into consideration, but alcohol dehydrates you and it's going to dehydrate your skin. It's going to make, you know, dark circles and and wrinkles more apparent on your face. It's going to, you know, in a sense age, you know, the way that you look. So there's that, you know, it's going to cause some gastro issues as well. And on top of that, I think that it's important to note that anybody who is looking to be like more helpful in the sense of like what they're consuming it's not even just the drink that you're drinking. It's also like your decision-making is a little bit impaired. So you're going to probably opt for other food choices that maybe aren't as good for you either. So like when we're talking about drunk munchies, I have never met a soul that, you know, wanted to eat a kale salad in the midst of being wasted. You know, you're you're going to go for those chicken nuggets. You're grubbing for fries. Exactly. Or pizza. and And certainly even after that, waking up the next morning, again, I think that there's almost like a hangover culture, which is like, you're going to go for that bacon, egg and cheese or that breakfast burrito. You're not, I mean, some people do, you know, opt for green juices and that sort of thing. But I think that all of these things, you know, it's a 360 issue.
0: Yeah, totally. And and it also goes back to what you were saying about sleep, because we know that sleep is very closely tied, or sleep deprivation is very closely tied to weight gain. And even if people aren't feeling awakenings, they are having disrupted sleep, like you said. And that disruption is resulting in hunger hormones being affected and going up, and also increasing the desire for those foods. So, actually, there's physiology there. You know, I always talk about this desire for French fries and donuts. There's actually physiology in terms of hunger hormones and the desire to eat those things. So it's really interesting. What are some of the other, you talk about some of the other benefits. So I can imagine for like young 20 somethings, 30 somethings, maybe your cohorts, you know, there's this feeling of like immortality. We're not really thinking about our health. What are the other aspects that resonated with you?
1: Yeah, there were so many. I mean, for one, you know, this is again, something that in our Society is just kind of like a natural thing that now looking back on it, it seems so unnatural. You know the amount of money that we spend on alcohol, I think, is is something that is very striking to me. Um, given also that like alcohol is part of everything in our lives, from like celebrations to devastation. I mean, it's very rare that you're not going to find some form of booze at a wedding or at a birthday party, you know, or even a baby shower. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, it's like, you know, if somebody's having a hard day, the first thing a lot of people think to do is like bring over, you know, a bottle of wine to your friend to console them. And so I think that, you know, whether it be a job promotion, or like, you know, loss of a loved one, everything is really, it involves alcohol, it's very hard to pinpoint, you know, times and places that, that don't when you're getting together with other people.
0: Yoga classes, kids birthday parties. Yeah, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Yeah, and so
1: I think, you know, just that in itself is can be very problematic and also, you know, as I mentioned, the the money that we're contributing, you know, buying people booze as hostess gifts or whatever it may be, I think is is really eye-opening too, especially you know, I say like, depending on whatever your goals are in life, I think that there is a really easy way to say like, maybe put out alcohol and see how it does for you.
0: You actually have a, you have an interesting number, right? Like what, did, what, were, what did you have quoted in your book in terms of the money saved or the money used for alcohol?
1: Yeah. So I I used a very like loose calculation, which was, and granted, you know, cocktails are much more expensive in big cities and, you know, depending on where you're dining. But if you're spending, you know, $10 on an alcoholic beverage and you're drinking two to three nights a week, you know, over the course of 10 years, you could be spending upwards of $50,000. That's
0: just I mean, I, I read this, but it just blows my mind. So a $10 drink two to three times a week translates into 50 grand.
1: Yeah, like drinking two to three beverages two to three nights a week.
0: And if you think about it, to your point, like in LA, a nice glass of wine is more like $20.
1: Oh, definitely. And in New York, I mean, I've been to like nightclubs where it could be like $20 a shot. And again, that doesn't include the cab fare or your Uber or, you know, whatever you're eating after that to, uh, you know, soak up the alcohol and certainly not your recovery methods the next day. So, you know, I think there are a lot of, of benefits, but I think saving money, if that's something that is important to you, it's certainly a way to do so is by cutting uh, down on, on your alcohol intake.
0: So well-being, emotional well-being, mental well-being, physical well-being, finances. I think we've like beat the dead horse, but do you have do you have one more favorite like benefit of eliminating alcohol that you found in your life?
1: Yeah. And this one's like kind of a personal one, and also it it was a little, you know, sad to realize. But I think especially that first year of doing January, and really having people who were close to me question, you know, what my intentions were, I think, you know, that was easy for me to say, like, I have a bet going on, and I need to win, because I'm an Aries, and I'm competitive. And, you know, there's, I, I can't lose now. But I, I think that also realizing that how I was spending my time and with whom, because I think when you eliminate alcohol, you can propose to people, you know, let's do something else, or like, let's grab coffee, or let's you know, go rock climbing or whatever it is that you want to do. And I think that it might encourage you to realize what you do and do not have in common with the people that are around you, which can be a really powerful and great thing. But at the same time, it can be a little bad. You know, if you're consistently giving up alcohol or trying to arrange plans, that maybe isn't a fit for both of you, I think you can realize that, you know, more and more as time goes on. But again, like on the opposite side of the spectrum, you can really gather more information about the people that you're spending time with and realize who it is that you truly do have, you know, similarities to and who you wanna spend your time with.
0: It's sad not because necess- well, it is sad to lose people, right? When I think about it, I think it's sad that it's masking, you know, a broken relationship, right?
1: Right. Or one that may, you know, just doesn't stand on its own. Doesn't serve you. Yeah.
0: All right. So a lot of benefits. Right. And I know that a lot of people are looking, you know, to take on this challenge now, particularly because many people increase their consumption over the past year, but it's hard. Right. So how do you recommend people tackling this? Do you have some pro tips in that regard?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, first and foremost is that you need to be kind to yourself, because I think that, you know, giving up any habit that you, you know, use to socialize or to decompress or, you know, that you, you typically turn to in times of need can be very difficult. And so I don't want to discount that at all. Right. First of all, be, be very nice to yourself.
0: And I love that you're saying that because in terms of any kind of habit change, and as you know, I work in medical weight loss, but self-kindness and self-compassion is so important to behavior change, to effective behavior change. And in my book, Hungry for More, that's coming out next month, I talk about the science behind that. So I love that you brought that up first. Kind.
1: Yeah. I think it's so important. Just Be nice to yourself, be your own cheerleader. I think after that, there are are a number of tips that I have, and this is in no particular order. I can just tell you what works for me. The first is like eliminate your potential triggers. So if you have a, you know, a bar cart or a collection of wine, or you have, you know, spirit bottles that are easily accessible in your kitchen um, or your refrigerator, you know, maybe they're can't fear I would remove them completely I mean you can you can definitely um, hide them you know put them in a storage closet where you're not going to be frequently passing or reviewing them but I also think like it's totally acceptable to ask a friend to hold on to them for the month or if you're you know really gung-ho about this just pour it down
0: the drain just get it get rid of it Yeah. yeah this is also a really good point because even when we're talking about food cues you know, we know that those visual cues, we take them for granted, you know, you think you can have the candy in the candy jar, and and you can walk by it and have willpower. But actually putting that jar in the pantry matters. And believe it or not, they did a scientific study to show that. But get it out of the way, right? Like, don't don't trigger yourself, as you said. Absolutely. So I
1: think like, that's super important. And I, I also think that goes hand in hand with like, Limiting or eliminating the possibilities when it comes to like socializing or activities. So I am very type A. I love to plan things. Um, And for me, that means, you know, making plans and dates with my friends that are in the schedule. So I know I'm going to see them and I know that there's no possibility of it being in a bar or, you know, that sort of thing because I've already taken the initiative to say, like, let's go you know, shoots and hoops, or like, let's take a walk, or like, let's get coffee. And I think even furthermore, to take it a step further is if, you know, we do want to meet in a bar, also seeing if there are non-alcoholic options available, but I think that's really important. too.
0: Yeah, that is a good tip. And I do want you to get to that. That's becoming so much more available. I want to highlight the pairing of the interaction with also some kind of physical activity. So doing that walk or you mentioned, you know, rock climbing earlier, or you know, doing one of those activities actually also helps further kind of bolster your defenses <laughs> in terms of habit change.
1: Yeah. And I, I think also like, you know, if you happen to be dating too, I think a lot of dates like happen in this almost like interview style at a bar or like, you know, sitting down for dinner with drinks. And I think that having that physical like element of activity, whether it's like bowling or like ice skating or whatever it is that's available to you, I think it really opens up more opportunity for conversation. And also you get to learn more about the person as they are going through this activity with you and and seeing what their likes and dislikes are, rather than just them telling you like, I like to go bowling or I'm really bad at it. It's like to see that in action, I think is really fun and engaging.
0: And opens people up, right? Like there's a higher degree of intimacy that way and not opening up in a kind of sloppy, messy way because (laughs) you've drank something.
1: Yes. That's a very important conversation too. Yeah. And then I think, you know, another tip would be to replace your alcoholic beverages with non-alcoholic ones. If you, you know, find yourself craving a specific taste or, you know, that ritual of having a glass of wine, I think that, especially now, there are so many brands that have basically copied, you know, the flavor profiles of, you know, beverages that we love. I think back in the day, you know, there was that one non-alcoholic beer brand that people used to laugh off. And it was kind of almost like a joke.
0: We all drank it when we were pregnant.
1: Exactly. But now there are so many other options and different tastes. And, you know, there's everything from, non-alcoholic Proseccos to IPAs to, you know, non-alcoholic spirits like tequila and vodka and gin. And so whether, you know, you want to whip up something on your own and make a cocktail at home, you can do that.
0: Or even like kombucha, right. Or sparkling water with like a twist of something. I mean, to your point, it's often habitual. It's not even like people aren't wanting to get buzzed all the time, but it's just, they get in this habit of like having something in their hand.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think it's, you know, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to also see like, you know, maybe you like something that you would have never considered before. I think, you know, doing a dry January or sober October or any other month is like a wonderful opportunity to really explore other products.
0: And any month, right? Like we talk about dry January and we talk about New Year's resolutions, but to your point in your book, like any month can be the right month to do this. I love your tips and I love your hero story, but I also like to anticipate right because a lot of people may not like fly the first time that they try it and I think that's important right to just manage expectations and make people realize that it doesn't have to be the nail in the coffin right so what are your thoughts around that and you know managing people's expectations and you know having kindness in terms of maybe when they do falter
1: yeah I was just about to say that too I think it really goes back to being patient with yourself and being kind. And I don't think that dry January or sober October is a failure. If you have a drink or a night of drinking, or perhaps even a weekend, I think it's just really about, you know, lifting yourself back up and just starting over where you left off. On top of that, I think that, you know, specifically for dry January, because it's like such the big month or whatever it is, but really for any month or any period of time where you are, looking to be successful in a dry, you know, stint of time, I think that like you can really grant yourself that one drink day or night or, you know, whatever it is, especially if you have something on the calendar that is unavoidable. For instance, like if you're getting married and there will be champagne toasts, of course you can opt for a non-alcoholic prosecco, but if you're going to be drinking, like don't beat yourself up about it. This is your wedding day. Like hopefully it's only happening once. And And like, enjoy it. And then just like, start again.
0: It's kind of, again, it goes back to the food thing. Like, you know, you want a piece of cake, eat it, move on, you know, because that beating yourself up, actually the not having self-compassion. And I also talk about this in the book. So I think, I mean, I think it's so important to have a change is it causes sabotage because all of your resources are going into beating yourself up as opposed to forward thinking. It's the same with the alcohol, right?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. So I think, you know, if you're having like a one drink month or like a, I call it, I think a damp January. A damp January. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. The The purpose of, of dry January, there are so many reasons, but I, I really do believe that, you know, one major takeaway is just seeing what, you know, your relationship with alcohol is like and if you want to change it. So, you know, as long as you're observing like, the changes within you or how it affects you. I think that is a marker of success.
0: Yeah. Awareness. I was going to say, right. I mean, that in and of itself is huge. So this has been so great and a great kind of synopsis. If people want to dive in further, how can they tell us about your book, where they can find it?
1: Yeah. The book is called the dry challenge. Uh, You can find it on Amazon at Tran bookstore uh, Barnes and Noble. And I think that there's like, it's in 2000 Target stores.
0: Ooh. Yeah. It's a pretty purple cover. It is a pretty purple cover. And what about if they want to you know know more about you personally and connect with you, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So um, they can find me, my website is hillaryshinebound.com. H uh, i l a r y s h e i n b a u m, And uh, my Instagram is Hillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y, writes W-R-I-T-E-S-N-Y.
0: Awesome. Well, I hope that the listeners will go out and get your book. And actually, I didn't tell you this earlier, but I cite your book in Hungry for More. Wow, that's so exciting. It was a great book. And so I really recommend for people to check it out and check out your website and learn more about you. And I thank you again for joining me. I love talking to you before and I love talking to you today. And I hope we can talk again soon.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot
0: of fun. As always, thank you so much for listening. I love having you with me and sharing these conversations with you. I hope that you have taken away a health bite, a small actionable step that you can implement in your life to help improve your own health and well being. If you want to know more about me or get more inspiration, Please follow me on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Udeem. You can also join me on my website at dradrianudeem.com and look out for my book coming up, Hungry for More, a blend of story and science to inspire weight loss and well being. Lots of good tidbits and actionable health bites that I'm super excited to share. Talk to you again next week.